Uh, this morning, we are going to talk about an elephant and perhaps the bulletin cover, if you could take a quick glance at it, uh, gave away the elephant of the day. Um, if not, that maybe that's a good thing that it didn't give it away. Um, the elephant for today is the elephant of sex. Uh, that is definitely you swiping right on the elephant. That is the picture there. If you don't know what swiping right is, then great. We have less to talk about in our, uh, in our talk this morning. But uh, we are covering this subject for the next two weeks. Uh, we will be talking about the elephant of sex. Um, Little little thing that happened recently to me that uh, was interesting. I watched the first ever episode, my first ever episode, of the West Wing. Any West Wing people here? Yeah, okay. Uh, this is Kevin Longmire's favorite show of all time. And uh, we have worked together for nine years now, and uh, he has mentioned on the regular the West Wing, and I have not watched it at all, not out of spite or out of any other reason than I just haven't got around to it. And recently, he uh, reminded Shannon of the series. She started to watch it, and then uh, I sat down and watched an episode, and it was in the middle of who knows what season, and I didn't understand all the characters, but one thing stood out to me that was so clear right from the beginning, and it is this. I can understand why it is a great show because it has an incredible script. It is so well written. It is intriguing. And the script, like many of us know, is what makes a good show, a good movie. The script is so central to what's going on because it highlights all of the actions that people play out. It gives life to characters. It, it creates tension and builds emotion. It is the thing that, like, gives voice to what is happening and life to the actors. And all of that stuff is taking place because of a really good script. And I say that this morning because I believe that every one of us, in some way, shape, or form, is reading off of a script as it comes to the subject of sex. We might not know how we got the script. It might have been passed down to us over a period of time. It might be something that culture is like passed on. It might be something that you learned in your home. But all of us are working off of a script that's giving life to the way we live and move and have our being. It's giving life to the actions and the thoughts and the emotions that we play in. And there are all kinds of scripts. I mean, history has written numerous scripts on the subject of sex. If you look into the scriptures, there is the Jewish script of sex. This Old Testament understanding of what it meant to be intimate with someone. The rules and the regulations around it. And Jesus speaks to that and says that script does not align with the way that I call people into life. And so he rejects the Jewish script of sex. And then you get to the New Testament and you have this Roman script that's kind of outlined. You see it through the letters. You see it throughout the way people are living, the calls that, to action and to holiness 
And obviously this hedonistic strip of the Romans is again one that like runs contrary to the way of Jesus. And he speaks out against it and Paul speaks out against it. And then through the ages, we have had numerous cultural strips that we've adopted. Maybe you had a particular era you grew up in, and that became voiced to part of how you defined sex, how you understood it, what culture was asking of us, what culture was giving permission to. And so we have been depending on these strips for some time in the church, I am convinced has had numerous visions and uh, intentions in trying to figure out its strip, its playbook, marching orders, whatever words you want to use to describe it. The church has had quite a few bad scripts. We've worked off some pretty faulty kind of C-level, D-level kind of scripts. I'll give you a couple. We had, early on, we had the Augustine script. The Augustine script could best be defined, according to me at least, as sex being sinful or unholy. Sex only being intended for procreation. There were numerous prohibitions against oral sex, anal sex, masturbation, certain positions, and against sex for marital pleasure and intimacy, all of it was frowned on unless it resulted in the intention of procreation. Over and over, the church spoke and church leadership spoke against each and every one of these things. Sex was viewed as something that needed forgiveness rather than something that could be spiritual and holy. And the Augustine script led to a distorted view and to sexual repression and a a misunderstanding of the beauty of sex. And so then a a while later, we adopted a more Puritan script. Secretive, private, hidden, but also at the same time centered on shame. Scarlet letters and public shaming chastity belts, praying away lust, fear and coercion being used to shame people into compliance, trying to figure out how to control bodies through guilt, with the overarching idea that if we don't talk about it and we don't think about it, maybe it'll just go away. And so we had a Puritan script. I think recently we've probably lived more into a dualistic accommodation script. What I mean by this is dualistic in the sense that the church has decided it would just be best for us only to talk about those things that are quote-unquote spiritual and then let you guys try to just figure out anything that's quote-unquote secular. So if we just focus our attention on the sacred, then we don't have to worry about its intersection with the secular, and it'll just make things easier at church. We'll just talk about the spiritual. We'll just talk about worshiping God. We'll just talk about the knowledge of the Bible, and we'll downplay any of that relation to practice. 
Let's not talk about the nitty-gritty. Let's just keep it, like, theoretical and up here. And uh, then we can all walk away going, man, that was just great. I felt a really deep connection to God. And then if you ask, what does that translate into your life? The question is, I, I don't know. And frankly, if we are honest with ourselves in the way it's been translated for years, it, it's not a great track record. And that's why we have these elephants, right? Because we've created a dualism. And so we've had dualistic, but it's also been accommodation. Here's what I mean by that. Statistics tell us what we already know but don't want to know, which is that porn is a very present reality for a large percentage of people within the church. It is just part and parcel with the way our society has acted. And we, the church, have been, frankly, no different. Statistics about high school sex, college sex, hookup culture are all staggering. And we acknowledge it, we know it. But there is relatively no difference between the church and the rest of the world in these statistics. Self-pleasure is moving in our culture to places of addiction. You've even probably heard statistics like this. 95% of all men masturbate. The other 5% are liars. If Kevin would have said that, it would have been much funnier. <laughs> I say that and you're like, well, I don't know how I feel about it. <laughs> Man. We have sex not being defined by covenant. We have infidelity. We practice sex outside of marriage and before covenant and before commitment and loyalty. And so we realize these statistics are so true. And so what the church has done is not only been dualistic and let's not talk about it, we've also been accommodating. What I mean is we've lowered the bar. We don't talk about high standards. We soften the blow on God's call to holiness. We don't talk about it because the actions are rampant, and if we do, it might step on a lot of people's toes. So we shy away from calling out practices that are absolutely destroying communities. They're destroying lives, and we just turn a blind eye, and we go, man, I hope that it goes away, or we just accommodate it and say, what will be, will be, and let's just talk about something else. Now, these scripts that I just described may sound familiar to you because I am convinced these scripts are still being used. All throughout the church, these scripts are still being promoted, whether intentionally or other times just simply by laziness. But Little, if any, of these scripts that I just mentioned talks about what it means or gives voice to what it means for us to be embodied sexual beings, which is what we are. And what I think the church needs is an alternative script. It needs a Jesus-shaped script. It needs a reorientation around what it means to be the kind of people of God that are embodied sexual beings, but don't live just according to the culture, live according to some old script, live according to just the way we want to live, but we live according 
to what Jesus is calling us into. We need a script that calls us to be people of high sexual ethics, to be people who are committed to holiness and obedience. And I will say that that is our intention, that New Community wants to call you and challenge each and every one of us to have a high commitment to a high sexual ethic, to be the kind of people that embody what Jesus is asking us to be. So over these last several weeks and months as I've been thinking about this, I keep asking myself, what would be the parts of the script that we would write as a community? What would we include in the script that gives voice to our character, to our action, to the way we live, to the way we interact in society? What material should shape what it means to be an embodied sexual being? And my intention over these next two weeks is to get into that, to maybe start uh, outlining some of what it means to have a script with some really good material. A script that really speaks into how we as a community want to live. And so <clears throat> anytime I speak on an elephant, I always give a few caveats at the beginning. And so I'm going to do that again. Uh, here are a few things to think about as we get into the script. Number one, by no means will these two talks be exhaustive. Not a chance, unless you want to be here for hours, call it a seminar bring in some pizza for lunch or whatever, and get after it for a long time, there's not a chance, okay, that we're going to be exhausted. Uh, I will miss some parts that you think should be included. Absolutely. It's going to happen. I'm convinced. Uh, will I fail to emphasize points to the degree that you wish I would emphasize them? Without a doubt. That will probably happen as well. But this is simply an attempt to fill in some of the script and make sure that we're thinking about and interacting about this subject in a meaningful way. Number two, I have a fundamental presupposition that the Bible speaks into our understanding of sex. I believe that unequivocally. I believe the scriptures can help define the script, give voice to the script. But with that being said, I am also fully aware that the way we have always talked about sex in the church perhaps has led many of us, myself included, to versions of the script that do not most fully articulate the way of Jesus. I'm convinced of that. We have such a long history in the church and we've all picked up little parts of the script along the way and little parts don't equal complete ideas of truth. We have heard passages and ideas communicated in ways that have added to our faulty scripts because the church has a history of distorting what God intended for good. But I say all that with this knowledge that the Bible will be the source of wisdom for these teachings that we're doing the next two weeks. And then the third and final caveat is this. None of this, None of what I say over the next two weeks will actually matter at all unless you have an openness to having your script being transformed. It, it won't. It'll just be a waste of breath and of time if we're not willing to be people who say, hey, I am willing to allow the scriptures to challenge. I'm willing to ask questions. I'm willing to not think I have every single answer on this particular subject. 
then I think we can go somewhere. Too many of us, I would surmise, are walking around either not caring about the script we're reading from or we're acting out and acting in ways where we feel like our script is completely set and nobody can write into it, the spirit included. Some of us maybe are carrying around a dated script, an old version. Some of us are even carrying around other people's scripts. And I think some of us think we have our script so dialed in that we're starting to tell other people what our lines are and acting as if they should be reading our script rather than the script they've been given. So I say that to say be prepared to edit your script, maybe for some of you in very subtle ways, maybe for others in profound. With those caveats said, let me pray, and then we'll get into it. God, <coughs> we need you. We always do. And we are fully aware that you are present among us and that you speak to us. It's almost as uh, like a lover who would come to their partner and just simply say, tell us what you want us to hear. Tell us about yourself. Tell us why these things matter. And God, that's what I'm asking is that you would do that for us, that you would tell us what matters, that you would tell us what should be included in our scripts, and that we as a community and as small groups could wrestle and talk and think and be changed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to suggest three things this morning that I think should be included in our scripts. By for some of us by way of introduction, for others of us maybe by way of new things. Uh, this should be, for most, reminders. First, our script should recognize that sex is beautiful and powerful and erotic. It is amazing. It is a gift. The Bible's approach to sex is much different than the Puritan and the Augustine approach. It has a much different perspective. A lot of what we'll talk about this morning starts with the creation narrative, but early on in the creation narrative, you have this amazing interchange where God is kind of speaking about what it is he sees and what it is he's creating, and he says, I made the sun, the moon, and the stars, and they're good, and I made the earth, and I separated things, and it's good, and I made this, and it's beautiful, and this, and it's holy, and this, and it's amazing, and then he gets to this point where he says, I've made good, I've made good, I've made good, and then he goes, it's not good. And it's the first time that he ever utters those words, at least on record that we know, where he says, it is not good, and he says, it's not good for man to be alone. The text will be on the screen, but it's also in your copy in your hand in Genesis 1. It says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God, he created him male and female, he created them. And so he creates humanity and he has said up to this point that it's really good. And then he says it's not good for humanity to be alone, for man to be by himself. And so he creates a helpmate. And then he gives this command. Before he gives a command to have dominion over the fish of the sea 
and the birds of the air and over the land, before he gives the command to make disciples, before he gives the command to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, the first command he gives is to get it on. I mean, that's a rough Hebrew translation, right? I think it says it more like this. Uh, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. His first command is to have sex. Sex is the first gift given by God to humanity. That's staggering. He creates us and then he says, it's good. And then he says, I've got something for you. And he offers sex. Here it is. To enjoy for the benefit of our partner and to be one with someone. And human sexuality is not something that's socially constructed. We didn't come up with it, right? It is something that is an integral aspect of our image-bearing humanity. It is foundational to the way God created and designed us as humans. And so when the Bible speaks of sex, it speaks about it in powerful in erotic, in beautiful ways. Wisdom literature in the Proverbs says this, let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. It speaks in language of intoxication, of desire, of energy, passion, and this is just getting started. Nothing exemplifies this more than the Song of Songs. Quick show of hands. How many of you have read the Song of Songs in the last week? Last month? Last six months? We're like four hands now. The last year? Okay, and then we got a few more. This is not a regular part of our diet, the Song of Songs. I've been rereading it and blushing. It is insane. I mean, this is how it starts. Verse 2, right at the very beginning, let him kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. It doesn't like just start with God is holy and amazing. It just gets right into it. In fact, this is a book that is in our canon, our copy of the scriptures, with not a single reference to God. You realize that, right? But a lot of references to other things, okay? It is descriptive of our bodies. Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves behind your veil. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle that graze among the lilies. It goes on to describe the delight that the man is taking in the woman and describing her stature and his desire to enjoy the fruit of the vine. There's also a section where the woman is describing the man. It's in chapter 5. It, it goes like this. My beloved is radiant and ruddy, distinguished among 10,000. 
And then notice the way it describes. You can follow me here. His head is of finest gold. This part wouldn't be included in my wife's description. His locks are wavy, black as a raven. But then moving down, his eyes are like doves between streams of water bathed in milk, sitting beside a full pool. Who, who writes like that? I, not me, but that's amazing. His cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. Continuing to move down, his lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. His arms, no one's described mine this way, are rods of gold set with jewels. His body is polished ivory. Some just say that bespeckled with sapphires is like his abs, right? Which is amazing. It's just continuing. Then... His legs are alabaster columns set on bases of gold. His appearance is like Lebanon. Choice is the cedars. I, many commentators get confused. I put up a picture of some cedars. I think it means he was probably just tall. Yeah. You can interpret that however you see fit. But I think it makes sense. Um, spices and acts begin to be described. There's a description of a mountain of myrrh somewhere below the woman's breasts, aromatic spices in her proverbial garden, a request for wind to cross the garden to draw him in to eat the choicest fruits. Myrrh surrounding his thrusting into her opening and lips being like lilies dripping with that same myrrh. If your script says that sex is not meant to be enjoyed, you maybe have not read the good book recently. If your script speaks shamefully of sex, then it's the opposite of the way that the scriptures speak of sex. Some of you are like recording what verses to come back to later. I see it. You're putting it in your Bible app and your phone. You're like, well, let me check out chapter 5 again. Yeah. <laughs> if your script describes anything other than it being powerful and beautiful and erotic, then you are probably reading off the wrong script. He gave it as a gift for our enjoyment, and it is beautiful and powerful. Our script should also recognize that sex is spiritual. It is profoundly spiritual. Again, in the creation narrative, it says this, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Now, obviously, we know the writer is writing at a different time, um, and he's describing what is happening in terms of relationship. And he's saying that there is this significant thing that happens when two become one, they become one flesh, they become intertwined. Jesus, speaking of this same subject in the New Testament, says that uh, this oneness, let no man separate it. Do not in any way separate what God has joined together, that there is something unique that takes place and it should not be separated. What it's describing is two souls coming together. It's describing hearts and bodies being knitted into one. 
it is describing an intimate joining or a spiritual act. The language of the scriptures around sex and spirituality like overlap in really, really unique ways. I'm sure you've thought of this before, but I think it's a good reminder. There is a statement in the scriptures that we just read that says the two shall become one. The very word for one is the same word when in Deuteronomy 4, it says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. That same oneness. To give context to that, it just simply means that the union of two individuals patterns itself after the very essence of God's oneness. Put in other words, the act of two people coming together in sex is mirroring the closeness and the holiness of God. That is not the way our culture talks about sex. And that might not be a part of the script you ever heard of, but it is intimately connected. If you think it stops there, this connection between spirituality and sexuality, let's go a little further in the text. It says this in uh, Matthew chapter 1. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him, meaning he took his wife, Mary, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Um, the knew her not, just in case you're curious, does not imply that he forgot who Mary was. Okay, it implies that he did not have relations with Mary prior to Jesus. Now, this Genesis echoes the same thing in the opposite direction. Now, Adam knew Eve, and she conceived and bore Cain. Again, knew, not in the terms of like he knew who she was, but he knew who she was, right? Now, you might say, <laughs> what does this have to do with anything? This is describing, obviously, a deeply personal, experiential, intimate knowledge. A sexual knowledge. Are we all on the same page with that? Okay. Jeremiah 9. Thus says the Lord, let the wise man not boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. Same no. Exact same no in the original language. We go a little further into Luke in case you're just like, well, the Old Testament's kind of weird and they say some things awkwardly. Um, let's get into the New Testament. They said to each other, did not our hearts, this is on the road to Emmaus, did not our hearts burn within us while Jesus talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. It changes the way you look at communion. That's what he is describing. They broke the bread, and it's the same word, known. Intimate, deep, personal, affectionate, i.e. sexual, almost. A little later, 
John 17, and this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Eternal life to know, same word again. And we could go on and on and on. I was once talking to a pastor, and um, we were talking about sexuality, and he said, yeah, you know, the sex, most sexual uh, part of the Bible, and I was like, oh, yeah, Song of Solomon. He's like, no, John 17, the prayer where Jesus says that you may know me, right? It's the same word. And then he's like, that I may know the Father, that the Father may know me, that you may know me, that you may know the Father. It's like this whole, like, mess going on, right? But it's this beautiful, intimate, holy, amazing, spiritual knowledge, right? Sex doesn't make sense unless we understand it as holy. It doesn't. Paul makes this clear when he says in 1 Corinthians, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For it is written, the two will become one flesh. Here's this idea of oneness again. Paul isn't just talking about physical union. The term flesh means embodied personhood. Right? So when you have sex with someone, there is a personal transformation that is happening. You know this. There's something unique and mysterious. You're, when you're having sex with someone, you are being made one with them. Not my language. Not even just Paul's language. All throughout the text, it is saying this. It is a spiritual and physical and intimate act. The same way that marriage makes us one, the same way that we have oneness with God is the same oneness that we have with whoever we have union with. Because sex is an act of the soul. Sex is spiritual. Which takes us to the third recommendation for our script. And that is that sex is a deep vulnerability. Again, referring to the creation narrative. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Human beings are at the height of vulnerability when they're naked. They're at the height of vulnerability when they're naked. This is why people have dreams that they wake up in cold sweats over about being naked in public. That's why like, they, it's a fear. That's a dream that happens to a lot of people because it's a, a dream of vulnerability, of exposure, of rejection. It brings up fear-based emotions. Public nakedness is often described throughout history as bringing feelings of shame and fear and guilt. This is why in the past when conquering armies would come in and invade a town or invade a group of people and they would win the conquest, they would capture the enemy, they would strip all of them naked and then they would force them to parade through downtown. They did that not because it was sexual. They did that not so that they could stand there and be aroused. 
They simply did it because it meant that the people would be in utter shame in their most vulnerable state. That they would have all this emotion of fear and being loss and humility and humiliation. Because sex is a deeply vulnerable act. It is revealing our fullest self to the another and at the same time hoping for full acceptance while in our most vulnerable state. We often define the vulnerability of sex as being able to put our entire being in someone else's hands or of jumping off of a cliff and yet feeling safe. Like casting all of yourself in vulnerability at the feet of another and hoping for safety and security and acceptance in return. It is a deliberate act of surrender to your partner while holding nothing back. And for this intimacy to grow, for this to take root, to grow and to to deepen, each partner must be willing to meet the other's deepest needs and at the same time protect their greatest vulnerability. This is why great sex demands a nakedness on the inside. Penises and vaginas don't create great sex. Vulnerable, surrendered people create great sex. When you can be your most intimate, most vulnerable, most passionate in a moment with someone in complete nakedness and yet have security and yet have freedom and yet know that in the midst of that you will be fully accepted, that makes for the best sex. The most empowering, the most freeing. And I would say this, that is why sex needs a safe place to fully flourish. This is why sex needs covenant. This is why sex needs fidelity, needs commitment, needs a safe place if it's ever to reach its fullest expression. This week was a bit of an introduction. Foreplay, if you will. (laughs) Sorry, sorry. Maybe I went too far, but um, this is the foundation, I think, of the script. That if we understand that everything, really, that we're going to talk about next week builds off of this week, that you have to have an understanding that it is a sacred spiritual act. You have to have an understanding that it is powerful and beautiful and filled with erotic emotion. You have to understand that it is a space for our deepest vulnerability. And next week, our intention is to get into even more of the specifics. Next week, we want to get into covenant. Next week, we want to talk about how to be the kind of people that before you've entered covenant still live into certain callings that you've been given that set you up for covenant. We want to talk about what it means to then be in covenant and be faithful to that covenant. We want to talk about what it looks like to have good partnerships, what it looks like to treat others with respect and loyalty and dignity. We want to talk about what it means to live and embody these things and hopefully in the midst of it, continue to write the script, the script that brings honor and glory to Christ.
Thanks, Jeffrey. Let me pray, and then we're going to move into a time of worship. Uh, we're going to take communion. Uh, here's my encouragement. We've been talking about something that's really spiritual. We've been talking about something that's really emotional. We've been talking about something that's really vulnerable. And I would, I would say that all those same elements are the same elements that you should take this with. Right? A lot of times I think we take communion by just like kind of going through the motions. Right? We enter into something and we go, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. It's the body, the body of Christ broken for me. It's the, bread, uh, the blood of Christ shed for me. And, and these things are incredible, important elements to our faith, right? But I would also say that these things are about a vulnerability. That Jesus, in his most naked and most vulnerable state, was willing to give himself completely to you. And what he's asking for us to do is to come in a vulnerable state and accept these as a gift from him. And so my encouragement as you come and as you worship, as you spend time this morning, doing that, that you would be reminded of his deep love and loyalty to you, and that you would reciprocate with that same loyalty and love and vulnerability to him. Let me pray. God, I love this community. I love that we're willing to talk about these subjects. I love that we're not afraid, um, but rather we enter into the stuff that other people don't want to talk about. And uh, God, you've given us an incredible gift in sex, some of which uh, people in the room have not enjoyed yet, others have. And you intend for that to be uh, used in beautiful ways because it is for our good. So I pray that you would call us into that. Allow our conversation in small groups and our accountability groups this week to be powerful. And God, I pray that this would set us up for what you have to share with us this next week. We ask it in Jesus' name.